1K, the 1,000 Second Interview Podcast, is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. I'm Scott Galloway, and you're listening to 1K, the 1,000 Second Podcast. Every podcast is entertainment-focused and interview-driven. At the end of that time, we're done. 1K is affiliated with the 100 Words Film Festival and powered by Ortho Carolina. Let's put a thousand seconds on the clock. Our guest is one of the most important people in the world of theater today. He's an accomplished and successful Broadway producer, producing or co-producing over 70 Broadway shows. He's a member of the Board of Governors of the Broadway League, a Tony Award voter, co-chair of the National High School Musical Theater Awards, also known as the Jimmies. He's the president of the Independent Presenters Network, a group of Broadway presenters from North America, the UK, and Asia. And he's president and CEO of the Blumenthal Performing Arts, managing six different performance venues and over a thousand shows every year. He's Tom Gabbard. Tom, welcome. Good to be here. Well, I, I just going through that whole litany of things you do, I'm glad that you have time to, to participate in 1K today. I want to start with your work as a theatrical producer. What does a theater producer do, or more to the point, what do they need to do well? A good producer is about supporting talent, supporting artists you believe in, supporting their vision for a production. You know, and producers bring money to the table. That's a that's a key thing. But it starts with an idea. It starts with people that you believe in and then doing everything you can to support them. Wonderful. So what characteristics are you looking for in an individual or a show or an event where you go, that works? Most of all, an idea that resonates with me and that I think is going to resonate with other people. Sometimes people can have great concepts that really don't matter to anybody. And when you see something that's going to refresh their thinking and give them a new, more positive view of the world, those are the ideas that attract me. Great. So uh, you have to find it. You have to believe in it. Then you have to finance it. I won't ask you about raising money because... Well, that's something we do in our line of work, and I don't want to cry uh, during this podcast. But then, so you have something, you get the money, but then how do you figure out a way for whatever it is that you believe in to connect, to get out into the world and, and get people into the venues to see the shows? Well, that's that's something that, that, that I play a key role in, in the theater business, realizing there are lots of different avenues for these things. It's not a singular, even if people have their sights set on Broadway, it's not necessarily a straight path there. And there are multiple ways to monetize these things, to make money back. Broadway is actually a very, very risky place to be. 70 to 80% of the shows never recoup their investment on Broadway. Wow. So you need these other avenues, be it licensing, be it international, be it regional theater productions. You need a variety of different avenues to monetize these things. And do you know that on the front end? I mean, do you know this was probably... You, you have an idea of what those might be. Yeah. And, and particularly when it comes to the development side, you have an idea of, of which theaters would be good development partners, would be places where they're very supportive of mm. new work, where they have audiences that help enrich an understanding of the work, who sometimes bring money to the table. So particularly pre-Broadway, there, there are absolutely players that I know and recommend that will be a part of the strategy of how you work on getting the show right. So theater is obviously part of the entertainment world. The entertainment world is very relational. The epicenter of your world is over 600 miles away. You're based here in Charlotte. It's Broadway, New York. How do you maintain those relationships and stay relevant, current, connected? Broadway really has an outsized impact for the size of the industry. So New York 
ticket sales are typically about $1.8 billion. On the road, about $1.3 billion. So as an industry, a little over $3 billion, which in a banking town like Charlotte is like a rounding error. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. And yet it has this incredible impact. But, it's, but, but it also demonstrates that it's a very small business. Yeah. We all know each other. We, we all are reliant on each other. Frequently, people support each other's projects just because of the relationship. Yeah. We help each other through thick and thin. I'm pleased to be in a business that, in some respects, is still an old world business. It yeah. hasn't been corporatized like a lot of other industries have. Well, this idea of reliance on one another, and, and I guess that takes me to the question of, of fiduciary alliances that you've been able to create. So, correct me if I'm wrong, you sometimes will work and invest in shows and believe in shows while they're playing in Broadway or in London or wherever ultimately with the hope that they will come to Charlotte. Is that correct? Right. The Blumenthal invests typically anywhere from from $25,000 to $100,000 in typically eight to 10 Broadway shows a year. Okay. The, the leverage becomes then through our independent presenters network, which is a group of presenters all around the world. And I essentially, in the political world, they call it a bundler <laughs> that, that I go to other people yeah. and take similar amounts of money and put it together. And, and in total, then, it represents a lot of money. But it gives us a voice in the whole thing. It gives us some, as they say, skin in the game right. that we can influence things. And for us, it's influencing things that help shows come to Charlotte. Where do you see the next great show? Where, where does the pipeline begin? Well, Broadway is in a golden era. The, the number of new shows of really high quality has been extraordinary. You know, the, the Hamilton year, we all were thrilled with that, but worried, frankly, it might be a fluke. Yeah. And then the next season, we had Dear Evan Hansen and Come From Away. This season, Hades Town, Tootsie, a lot of really, really wonderful shows. Shows that I'm pleased to say frequently before they even open on Broadway, we have penciled in for Charlotte. Right. So, so yeah, the pipeline is incredible, and, and the diversity of these shows is remarkable. You know, people's past perception that Broadway just generated commercial fluff. Right. That's really changed. There's a deep artistic quality to a lot of these shows now. There's two shows I want to talk to you specifically about. One is um, based on the Ron Chernow biography of the 18th century. What was the guy's name Hamilton? Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, truly, my question to you is incredibly well done, but there has to be more to it. I mean, that was an absolute phenomenon. Do you? What do you attribute that to? Well, it, it was a phenomenon, and just to point out how difficult it is to foresee these things. That that was produced by Jeffrey Seller, who, who's a good friend of ours and of the IPN. And like all producers for the, our IPN meetings, we invite producers to come in and talk about what they're working on. And so uh, probably five years before Hamilton opened on Broadway, Jeffrey came and visited and talked about three projects he was working on. And one was a new musical that Sting was writing called The Last Ship. Mm-hmm. Another was was a new version of Peter Pan. And then was this show that Lynn was working on called Hamilton. And, and Lynn actually came with him to talk about it. And so I, I, I did a straw poll of our members afterwards as to what they were interested in. And Sting and The Last Ship came out top. And wow. Peter Pan, well, Peter Pan is Peter Pan. Yeah. And then, yeah, we all love Lynn, but a hip-hop musical about Hamilton, 
Mm, not so sure about. So it actually ranked third. Wow. Wow. Well, then, okay, so now the, the flip side is, and I'm, I'm going to give you a lot of credit here, because the very next year, correct me if I'm wrong, Dear Evan Hansen came out, right? Right. And so that you have the incredible success of Hamilton. That show could not be any more different, smaller, deals with some really difficult issues. But you believed in Dear Evan Hansen from the start. Why? I did, and it's among a number of shows that became big hits that I must say, really up until the last minute, a lot of people didn't necessarily believe in, and I'm proud of having championed it. I think the relevance of of social media Mm -hmm. and kids looking for meaning, the other thing I saw in it was it's a beautiful tribute to moms Mm. and the steadfastness of moms. You know, when this young man's world totally falls apart, the person who is there that still loves him. 500 seconds. That still is there for him is his mom. Yeah. And and as a parent, I just thought that was a phenomenal message. Yeah. And good for you to see past that because I would think there would be some cause for concern. I mean, this is a play that deals with suicide and it's difficult, but... Yeah, that worked out. Things that are dark, a lot of people will initially gravitate away because there there are ticket buyers. And in fact, I took some folks from Charlotte to see Dervin Hansen right after it opened. And one person said, you know, I work really hard every day in my job. And so when I go to a show, I, yeah. I, I want it to be happy and bubbly. And I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> so, so yeah, there are people that have trouble with the darker things, but the the message in this and the uplift, and particularly the universal message of you are not alone, that is just absolutely wonderful. Mm, yes, truly. When you put on a show and you're watching the show, where do you stand? And are you watching the show or are you watching the way the audience watches the show? Oh, I I watch the audience. And my wife will tell you I've done that for a lot of years. And actually, one reason that started many years ago when I was at Pepperdine University, which is in Malibu, Neil Simon, one of America's greatest playwrights, used to come and talk to students. And Neil, I remember him always telling students that his work as a writer really began with the first preview because the Mm -hmm. audience told him everything he needed to know about his play. Wow. And I've always felt the same about these shows. And and in fact, on Broadway, where I'm I'm lucky to go to many opening nights, I will frequently come back at at another performance as a Tony voter, in part because I want to be with a real audience. Opening night audiences are so unusual. For me to really understand that show and how people are reacting to it. I want to be with a real audience. Are people leaning in to listen? Right. You also talk a lot about how shows can be inspiring and the impact, the visceral connection that they have and the importance of that. Can you share with us a little bit about that? I'm most interested in seeing these shows be impactful to people. These kind of products create these aspirational moments that are so unique, especially Mm -hmm. for our kids. Mm And I say that, you know, from my own experience of being interested in the arts, from going on a school field trip to hear the U.S. Marine Corps band, these are these aspirational moments that a kid can look up there and say, I want to do that. I can do that. And that's where I think these performances really uniquely lift people up and help them aim high. Talk to us a little bit about the Bloomies. What are the Bloomies for those who don't know? And why is it important for theater and education to be a part of a greater curriculum? The Bloomies is our high school musical theater awards program. 
we, we started with 20 high schools, and now I think we're up to 48 high schools. It's open to any high school in the region to participate. But we send adjudicators out. They do some ratings. And then from that, we give 18 different awards, including Best Musical. We tier that by budget size and whether or not it's an arts magnet. But out of that, then, there's a Best Actor and Best Actress that because of this, they qualify to go to New York and participate in the Jimmy Awards, which is the National High School Musical Theater Awards. Mm. And that actually was the genesis for our creating the Bloomies. I, I went to the very first Jimmy Awards in New York and didn't know much about it, but I went because it was Jimmy Niederlander's 85th birthday, okay. and I was there to honor Jimmy. Yep. And about 20 minutes into it, I realized our kids couldn't participate because we didn't have a regional program. And after we started it, year two was when Eva Noblezada was our best actress here in Charlotte. We took her to the Jimmys. But that appearance is what put her in front of a casting director who cast her in the London revival of Miss Saigon. Unbelievable. And, and a few years later, nominated for a Best Actress Tony Award. And then again this year was nominated for Best Actress Tony Award. So the instinct that our kids given an opportunity to compete would succeed. We just needed to put some resources behind it and give our kids a chance. Mm. It's paid off wonderfully. Unquestionably, and, and we've had other winners, and I say we because I'm also in Charlotte with you, we've had other winners in categories since the Bloomies started. Yeah, right now we have two actresses from our Bloomie programs who are starring in productions, Eva on Broadway and Keki, who's starring in London, in Tina. So two actresses of color starring in major musicals. And then Renee Rapp, yeah. who last year was our best actress, she is now starring on Broadway in Mean Girls. So here we, we've just been added eight years, and we have three of these kids starring in major musicals around the world. 200 seconds. Incredible. Incredible. Talk to me a little bit about the attributes, the talents, the things that kids can learn when they participate in theater. The, the teamwork aspect, because the, theater is such a collaborative art form, and, and that's one thing I think people will hear over and over. It's interesting hearing from uh, people like Elton John, you know, who's, who say he loves the theater because it's so collaborative and he doesn't experience that elsewhere. They also learn that what they love, music, matters. You know, they grew up in an environment frequently that's so sports-focused that they think what they're interested in really doesn't matter. Yeah. So so there, there's a self-worth that's enabled through that whole process. And a confidence, I would think, as well. Not only and confidence, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the number one thing people are afraid of, I've read several studies, is public speaking. Right. So that opportunity to get out on stage and experience stage fright over and over and overcome that stage fright, that enables them. Our city of Charlotte faces a civic debate that many cities across the country are currently wrestling with, and that's this. The arts and nonprofit community want to raise money, hopefully $50 million a year, for arts education and greenway projects. To do that, a proposal is before our city commissioners to raise a quarter-cent sales tax. The initial response for the proposal was recently challenged at a public forum. Uh, there are other needs, a commissioner remarked, another commissioner said money should be going to, to the needs of the poor. How do you how do you respond to that, and are there ways that you can reframe the conversation? One hundred seconds. The arts have to be part of the toolkit, and setting aside a modest amount to help solve those social ills is really important. And I don't think that's gotten enough credit. We can look at things like the Bloomy Awards. 
and see, you know, students who come from very modest backgrounds with parents who have no understanding of how to help them navigate and see that programs like that open doors. Mm. Letting kids come to free performances. If those kids don't come through the doors, they will grow up thinking that they're not welcome. Right. They will feel even more disenfranchised. So, so yeah, we have huge problems, but the arts have to be one of the tools in the toolkit. 60 seconds. All right, Tom, it's time for the speed round. Here we go. If you had to perform the lead role in any show, what would you choose? Billy Bigelow in Carousel, which I did in high school. <laughs> What's your biggest theater pet peeve? Oh, people with candy in bags, you know, <laughs> who just crinkle the bag. It's like they take forever to pull out that candy. <laughs> Have you ever had a nightmare about an upcoming production? Every night, I live in terror that there's going to be a power outage or something that is going to interrupt. Outside of Charlotte's Blumenthal Theaters, which are all beautiful, what's your favorite venue? Oh, I think probably outdoors, the Hollywood Bowl. Has your cell phone ever gone off during a performance? It has. It has? I'm afraid it has. And, uh, I mean, I am fastidious about it. But Ten seconds. At the Golden Theater, which is one of the smallest theaters on Broadway, yeah, it, it went off. It was, it, and then when I push it, Siri comes on and talks. <laughs> Thanks for listening to 1K, powered by Ortho Carolina. If you like our show, please share it with a friend, leave us a review, and subscribe. Special thanks to producer Jordan Snyder, music by Jason Hausman. I'm your host, Scott Galloway. We'll be back in your feed with a new episode next week that's just 604,800 seconds away.